through there, and we're actually hoping to cover all of chapter 18. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 18, that'd be great. We covered the last half of chapter 17 last week. This week I hope to cover the whole chapter of chapter 18. The um, portion of scripture for the most part that we cover here in chapter 18 today is Paul's time at Corinth. You know, First and Second Corinthians, this is the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, being established here um, in Luke's narrative here in the book of Acts, while Paul's on his second missionary journey. So why don't we stand? We're going to read verses, just verses 1 through 4, because we will go through all of them, and uh, then I'll pray. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. That would be the God-fearing Greeks who had joined with the Jews at temple. The title of my sermon this morning is simply Corinth. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks and we give praise to you for this time that we have in your word. I ask that you help me to declare that which you've given me to set forth and that you use it for good in the hearts and minds of all those gathered, that it would build them up in the faith, making them greatly desirous to serve you in the earth, O God, that it would deepen their love for you. And Lord, that we would go forth from this place desirous to make you known to men because of what we cover here today. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So in verse 1 here, it starts out and it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And of course, the after these things that the scripture is talking about here is after Paul had failed to get permission from the magistrates to preach the word of God in Athens. He leaves Athens, he departs, he moves on, he goes to Corinth, which is also part of the province of Achaia. It's a Roman province there. So I want to kind of show you, are we ready with that slide? Ivan, um, just where we're at here, so you can see. Oh, we just unplugged that. So that was why that was still on. Fred's going to tell me how tired I was when I get done with this sermon. So anyway, here's the thing. We'll move this ore out of the way. So we're over here somewhere. We've been in Thessalonica, Berea. We're moved down this way. There's Athens. So, remember, he got thrown out of Macedonia, gets to Athens, can't preach the word there. Um, The magistrates are against it. So now he moves over this way, further to the west, to Corinth. So there's Corinth now. And Sencria is going to be mentioned today. That's where Paul shaved his head because he took a vow. And then he makes it across here to Ephesus and onward, all the way down here to um, Jerusalem. So anyways, I just wanted you to be able to see that. Okay, we can turn that thing off now. And um, so you could get like a little idea of that. So let me give you a little history on Corinth. It was actually built on a plateau on an acropolis that was nearly 2,000 feet above 
sea level. So it was like an imp- almost impregnable, it was defeated, but it was an almost impregnable fortress of a city because of the geography where it was built. Because of its strategic land and sea location, Corinth became a prosperous city-state in the 8th century B.C. So this is 800 years plus before Paul shows up in Corinth. It became this zenith of power and wealth during the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. Like the place everybody wanted to be. It boasted about 200,000 freemen and 500,000 Slaves. And there again, it just shows you how men are willing to conform, right? So there's 200,000 freemen, there's 500,000 of you, and you all submit to them. <laughs> so it's the same thing even today. You know, I'm just stunned how everybody goes along. Oh, well, the federal government has said this, so all the states say, so we got to do it. Even though it's evil, even though it's perverse, oh, we got to do it. Man's willingness to conform is always the most shocking trait to me of mankind. And they'll take their whole family, they'll take their whole nation, their whole community right over the cliff into the sewer just to obey. It's like, what insane asylum were you raised in? The whole history of, of the Jews and the whole history of Christianity is one of faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to the Lord. And when the laws of men contradict his law or word, there's a resistance that takes place. And it is incredible history uh, when you read it because that isn't the case in most nations of the world. And unfortunately, most pulpits never speak of this anymore. I had a um, guy who, a pastor, local pastor here, chime in on one of uh, some thread on Facebook. and He was really concerned, you know, about these teachings about when Christians shouldn't obey the government because the main thing we should just be teaching is, well, in his estimation, as he said, the only thing we should be teaching is that we are to obey the civil authorities. Of course, he said that to the wrong person. And that is like crazy, stupid, ridiculous nonsense. Uh, But that's where we're at now. And so there's this whole move, even amongst Christian people, to conform, even when people are being murdered, even when God's law and word is being impugned, and two men and two women are marrying each other, and on down the line. In the 5th century, Athens excelled Corinth in power and wealth, so Corinth felt the second place. But by the end of that century, they were both weakened by the defeat of themselves in the Peloponnesian War, which Sparta won in 404 BC. Corinth then fell to Macedonia, led by Philip II in 338 BC. This is where your eyes start glazing over, you're reminded of history class at school followed by his son Alexander the Great. In 196, Corinth was captured by Rome and declared a free city, but in 146 BC, Rome got into a conflict with the Achaean League, which was Athens, Corinth, and a bunch of other city-states that tried to throw off Roman rule. They were defeated in 146, and because of that, the Romans decided to level Corinth. They literally obliterated the entire city, smashed everything to pieces, and sold hundreds of thousands of the survivors into slavery. So for 100 years after that, Corinth lay in utter ruin. No one lived there except jackals and owls. <laughs> you know, It was just empty, utterly obliterated for 100 years until in 46 
A.D., B.C., pardon me, Julius Caesar declared it's time to rebuild Corinth. And so in 44 B.C., it became a Roman colony, and by 27 B.C., it had grown so rapidly, it became the capital of the Roman province, Achaia. So when Paul arrives in Corinth, it was less than 100 years old. Think of that. But it had become massive during its first nearly 100 years. There were, at this time, scholars say, more than 200,000 people that lived there, and that was more than 20 times bigger than the population at Athens, where Paul had just left. So this is a huge city. Those living there were made up of local Greeks, freedmen from Italy, Roman army veterans, businessmen, of course. They follow the people because money is what they live for. Government officials and others from various places, including a large number of Jews. Corinth was very immoral sexually. A term that was regularly quoted was to Corinthianize, which meant to make oneself or others sexually immoral. That is how awful the reputation was. Corinth was the center of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, which had at one time a thousand temple prostitutes itself. And there were many other temples to many other gods there in Corinth. I won't speak of what all went on with you know, Aphrodite and her followers. Suffice it to say, there was all forms of sexual perversion and license available there, just as it's available here in America in our day and throughout the West in our day. People drunk on their sexual lawlessness. They also held their Pan-Hellenic Games in Corinth every two years, a precursor to the same we do with the Olympic Games in our day. So in other words, man still lives as a troglodyte 2,000 years later, living in their little hovel of a world with their little self-absorbed lives of pleasure and entertainment. When in rebellion to the Lord, your life goes nowhere and is pathetic and without true meaning or any real purpose. And that's another shocking trait about man how he thinks his life is so wonderful as he lives in rebellion against the Lord. So this is the context of Corinth when Paul arrives there in about 4950 A.D., somewhere in there. And it says in verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. We have a daughter named Priscilla. And they had come there because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Remember, this is a historical fact that we pointed out in an earlier sermon from Acts. It was an important thing that took place, even to the things recorded by Luke in his narrative here in the book of Acts. And they were out of the country for about five years before they were allowed back in. The Jews were. And that is the main reason the book of Romans was written, because... Prior to all the Jews being thrown out of Rome by Claudius, the makeup of the early church had been prevalently Jewish. But once they were thrown out, it became prevalently Gentile. So when the Jewish believers came back, there were these conflicts between the Jewish and Gentile believers, both theologically and practically, and Paul wrote the book of Romans to address many of those conflicts, both theological and practical, 
between these two groups. So here they are, um, Aquila and Priscilla. We know little about them. Many scholars believe Priscilla came from a wealthy family because numerous times in the scriptures where they're spoken of, her name is mentioned first before Aquila's name is mentioned. We also know, we do know, I should say, that Paul would later speak highly of them. Look at what he says of them in Romans chapter 16. So look that up on your phone or flip through your pages. And um, Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, or hazarded their lives for mine, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So this was a couple of great standing, who faithfully served the Lord, obviously, through their lives. And this is who Paul hooks up with there in Corinth. And what else does that tell you? It tells you Paul's on a missionary journey, right? And he runs into Christian people <laughs> there in Corinth while he's on. Because God, again, through persecution, the Jews and the Jewish believers had to leave Rome and go to different places. God always uses persecution to further his message to other geographical areas. We see that time and time again. Praise his name. Verse 3 says, So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. So they got this common thing of both, all of them loving Jesus, and they have this common thing that they do the same kind of work. They're tent makers. And understand, for the most part, Paul financed his own missionary efforts through his work, through his trade, as a tent maker and a leather worker. He spoke of this numerous times in the New Testament, for those of you who are radically that way, where you have to write down passages. I'll give them to you very quickly. You can mark them down in your notes. Acts 20, verse 34. Not to mention here, of course. Acts 20, verse 34. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10. So Paul talks about the work that he does, how he works with his own hands to provide for his needs. But as we'll see, that isn't always what he did. He would receive gifts from believers, which would free him up to minister um, more frequently. By the way, did you know that Jewish law actually directed that young theological students be taught a trade? Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, I try to teach all my kids a trade. Um, we're blue-collar people. And, but it's something they can always do and raise their family on for the rest of their lives. So I thought that was interesting, giving the Faithful Soldier School of Evangelism format, trying to teach young men trades, while at the same time teaching them theology. And here the Jews were doing that thousands of years ago. Verse 4 says, And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Paul was working during the week as a tent maker, so he was not out in the marketplace open-air preaching as he was prior to this. He probably ran out of the money he had, and he had to work again in order to build up a little income and then be able to freely minister more. So he's only going on the weekends to temple, 
He's still able to go there and speak to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that gathered there. And notice Luke says he reasoned with them and he persuaded them. And that is part of our witness. This is part of our message. This is part of our preaching. We are to reason. We are to persuade. We are, in other words, to use logic and pathos. And sadly, you see very little of it often if you've seen any field preachers, (laughs) you know. Um, Awful. A lot of the style of a lot of field preachers. And of course, awful what you see from the pulpits these days. Tragic condition, the pulpits of America. But we are all to use logic. We are to reason with people regarding our faith. And we are to be passionate. We are to have pathos. And do you have that? You should have that when you talk with people. You should want to convince them that what you're saying is right. Now, in verse 5, we see a development. Verse 5 says here, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Silas and Timothy arrive, finally, from Macedonia, and though Luke is silent about it here, scholars point out that they arrived with two things which no doubt encouraged Paul. First, there was a report that the Thessalonians were doing well in spite of the persecution they were suffering, and second, there was a financial gift from the church at Philippi. So Paul receives good news about the continued faithfulness of those persecuted at Thessalonica, and he receives a financial gift from the Philippians. Both of these cities, these churches, remember, were in Macedonia, and this is where Silas and Timothy just arrived from, it says in our text, verse 5. And scholars look over the scriptures and see this must be the time at which other things, which Luke does not mention, took place. The good report from Timothy was needed. From Silas and Timothy was needed. And it was the precursor or the impetus for why Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And he actually addresses this matter of them continuing on faithful and how much it meant to his heart in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 8. So let's turn there. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 8. Remember, chapter 2, he discusses all the persecution they've been suffering and how happy he is to hear the good report that in spite of all that persecution, they're continuing faithful with the Lord. And he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, that would be what we're talking about in Acts 18, verse 5. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Amen? So this was a goodness for Paul to receive this word from, from Timothy and Silas that the Thessalonians were, Thessalonians were continuing on faithful to Christ in spite of the persecution. And secondly, they brought this gift from the Philippian church. And it's spoken of, first look at 2 Corinthians 11, 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Right about now, some of you are thinking, 
Gee, Pastor Matt, can't you just give us a pep talk like most places do? No, you got to actually use your brain here and actually think. And because he says to love him with all our mind. Amen? So here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. It says, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. And look what he says. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. He's talking about when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, here in Acts 18.5. They brought a financial gift from the brethren there to him. So here these persecuted believers are sending money over to Paul so they can more fully do his ministry. And it came mostly from the Philippian church, and we know that because of what Paul said in Philippians 4. Turn there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. This is what he's telling the Philippian church. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, which of course we just read about back there in Acts 16, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. So, it was the church at Philippi that supported him. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So this is like important to understand. Silas and Timothy show up with these two great things which are encouraging to Paul. The fact that the Thessalonians are continuing faithful with Christ, in spite of the persecution, and a financial gift which will free up Paul so he can quit doing tent making for a time, and get back to full-time preaching out in the marketplace there in the city of Corinth. So these two matters develop a change in Paul's ministry efforts. He may have been full of fear, maybe even somewhat down or disillusioned by how poorly things seem to have gone in Macedonia and Athens. But now the brothers are with him again. He gets this good report about the Thessalonians, Continuing strong in the faith, he gets this financial gift from the Philippians, so he steps things up at the temple. Verse 5 here actually says he was, quote, compelled by the Spirit. Compelled by the Spirit. Remember we talked about that in our last sermon? Out of Acts 17, where it talks about he's provoked, Paul was provoked in his spirit. And he had to speak. And that's what happens. When the Lord moves on our hearts, We have to speak. We must, we should. We don't always, do we? But we should. And that is a precious thing when the Lord moves upon your heart that way, and you can't help but let it out. Verse 6 goes on here in chapter 18 and says, But when they opposed him and blasphemed, talking about the Jews, opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he lets them know, I'm clear of my responsibility as a watchman. I warned you. You've rejected the message of the gospel. And he says, now I will go to the Gentiles. This does not mean he's not going to go to the Jews anymore. Like he's done with the Jews and I'm only going to go to Gentiles now. We all know Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles. No, he still continued to go to the Jews. We know that 
uh, for a number of reasons. Verse 19 of our same chapter, when he gets to Ephesus, it says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, talking about Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when he's on his third missionary journey and goes back to Ephesus later, we see in chapter 19, verse 8 of Acts, 19, verse 8, it says, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. So here he is back at temple, back at the synagogue with the Jews. Remember, this was his SOP, standard operating procedure. Start with those who have a common worldview, namely the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, present the gospel to them and then go out onto the streets and proclaim it to your average pagan. And remember, he was able to do this. He was able to go out into the streets here to the Gentiles and minister to them on a full-time basis because he had been freed up by the gift from the Philippians so that he could minister daily in the marketplace. So understand, though Paul most often provided for himself, he did, and was not adverse to, receiving gifts from the brethren, so he was free to minister more. Amen? There's a lot of people use that as a thing. Oh, you should just work a job and be a minister. Well, actually, Paul took the money (laughs) and then ministered more. And that's what should be done when people support you in your ministry, what God's given you to do. So Paul stays with a God-fear named Justice. Look at verse 7 here in Acts 18. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, so he's a God-fearer, whose house was next door to the synagogue. How convenient is that? So it's right next door. The church, those who are interested in the gospel, the things of God, start meeting at Justice's house. It's a house church. That's how all early churches were. They met in homes. And then something shocking happens. The ruler of the temple and his entire family convert to Christ. Crispus, whom Paul cites as one of the few he personally baptized at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 14-16, converts to Christ as does his whole family. Look at verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Amen? So this is like an astounding thing. Crispus converts, the ruler of the temple. His whole family converts. And whole households converting to Christ was not unheard of. Though many who turn to Christ do not have family join with them. Jesus himself talked about this, right? That those who follow him, their enemies would be they of their own household. That is the more common thing. But it's not unheard of where whole families come to Christ. And here we saw it in Philippi with the jailer in Acts 16. Now we see it here with Crispus in chapter 18. And I've seen it in my lifetime, where one person becomes a Christian, and like it moves through their whole family. And their whole family ends up becoming Christian people. It was almost true of my family. There's only one of my four siblings that isn't a Christian. 
We were all just dopey pagans before my mom first came to Christ. And then all the rest of us seemed to follow in one way or another as the years went by and came to the Lord also. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord speaks to Paul. Look what it says there, verses 9 and 10. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. This may have been important for Paul to hear because he may have had some fear. He may have had apprehension and been afraid because of what went on in Macedonia and what went on in Athens. He could have been there in Corinth just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, so to speak. Things have been going pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. So it could be partly for that reason the Lord spoke to him, and it could be also partly because of the fact that he's about to get persecuted. (laughs) So the Lord's preparing his heart for what is about to happen because the Jews are about to go on another rant against him. So let me mention something about the Lord speaking to Paul. And yes, the Lord does speak to his people. We have seen this many times in Scripture. I have seen this happen in our day, and yes, I too have had the Lord speak to me. Something to note about that. Whenever we believe the Lord has spoken to us, first, it should never contradict Scripture. Second, there is nothing in the text that suggests this was audible. So it could be completely internal, and most likely was, as it was in the midst of a vision that the Lord spoke to him. I'm always leery of anyone who tells me the Lord speaks to them audibly. And third, yes, people can develop weirdness, thinking the Lord is speaking to them regularly. Seems to be an unusual occurrence that happens from time to time. And when someone thinks it's like every day, usually there's some weird dopey stuff going on. It's just a matter of time to see how weird and dopey it really is. So we see it's infrequent and does not lead to odd thinking or behavior. Anyway, what the Lord says here to Paul may have been important to him for the two reasons that I said. And notice what he said to him. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. Fear equals silence. Fear equals silence. Have you ever felt compelled to tell someone about the Lord and you were suddenly filled at the same time with fear? Fear that you might not do well in what you say to them? Fear that people might laugh at you or think, what a weirdo, or something like that? Fear equals silence. Fear is what makes us be quiet. When the magistrates make bad law, it's designed to produce within the people of God fear, so they just shut their mouths and go along to get along. And the truth of the matter is, we must be bold in Christ and continue to speak Even when the magistrates want to make law that says, oh, you want to keep your mouth shut about that. Even when you're in the midst of a setting where you know people are probably going to mock. You trust him, you move forward, you open your mouth, you use the lips, the teeth, the tongue, and the lungs that he's given you, and you proclaim him. You talk to people. Overcome your fear. What does the scripture say? 
perfect love casts out fear. Amen? If you love him and you love your neighbor, you will speak. If you allow fear to rule you, you will stand there like a shell of a person, silent. So here again we see Jesus telling Paul, speak. Fear, being afraid, obviously was there for Paul and what he had already experienced and what he's about to experience. It was important for the Lord to say that to him. And look what it says in verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months. So Paul was there 18 months teaching the word of God among them. Teaching the word of God among them. And we know historically about halfway through this 18 months, this year and a half, spoken of here in verse 11, a new proconsul took office in Corinth, one Gallio. We also know that Crispus, who was the ruler of the temple, was removed and was replaced with a guy named Sosthenes. Those who did not like Paul's message at the synagogue may have gotten Crispus removed and then saw this as an opportunity to get rid of Paul completely by bringing charges against Paul to this new proconsul, Gallio. Got the picture? And Luke's account of this situation is in verses 12 through 17. Let's read it. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Crispus has been removed. So the Jews make their move with the magistrate, this new proconsul, in order to rid Paul from their city. And in this case, as a proconsul was a provincial ruler, not only remove Paul from the city, but from the entire province, and set a precedent throughout Rome that these Christians should be silenced. Verse 12 reveals that they brought Paul before the judgment seat, or as it was known, the bema. This was in the center of Corinth. People would gather there whenever judgment was being made by the proconsul. Hundreds, if not thousands of people would gather in to watch the proceedings. So they bring Paul before Gallio in the center of the city, this raised platform called a bema, which he sits upon and hears the allegations being made and judges the case. Gallio, by the way, was held in high esteem throughout Rome. We know this because of many writings about him by Roman men who were his contemporaries. He was said to be of marvelous character, renowned for his personal charm. He was the son of a well-known Spanish rhetorician, and was the brother of the well-known and famous Seneca, which if you're familiar with Roman history, was a statesman, a poet, and on down the line. 
he and his brother Seneca, Gallio and his brother Seneca, would be killed by Nero in 65 AD. They were both put to death. Seneca by forced suicide. And Gallio by outright execution. This, what we're reading about in Acts, is about 15 years before they were put to death by Nero. So the Jews make their charges. Paul is about to speak, verse 14 says, right? And when Paul was about to open his mouth. But before he can make his defense, Gallio throws the case out. Gallio did not want to judge their squabbles. He probably got that glazed-over look on his face, right? About two minutes into the Jews talking about their law and how this guy's misproclaiming it and all this kind of stuff. That glazed-over look probably came on his face like, I'm not dealing with this nonsense. So Paul's ready to give his defense, but before he can even offer, open his mouth to give his defense, Gallio just throws the whole thing out. I had that happen at a trial once. It's one of the most awesome things. Gallio did not want to judge what they said, verses 14 and 15. Paul was about to open his mouth. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. Bear with you. (laughs) Okay, he's already like, this is so crazy what they're talking about. I can't even understand. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drives them from the judgment seat. Yeah, there's a large crowd. And so the soldiers move in and say, this is over. <laughs> you know, you're, you're all going away now. You're leaving. And then it says in verse 17 that some Greeks decide to take Sosthenes and beat him up right there before everybody leaves. And we don't know if these were the God-fearing Greeks who kind of liked Paul's message and thought, oh, okay, he didn't side with Sosthenes, let's beat the poop out of him. You know what I mean? Or if it was just some rabble-rousing folk who, um, who uh, thought, let's teach these Jews a lesson. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know there, at least when I grew up, there were people who just liked to fight because it had some fun to it, you know? And... Now, males are so incredibly effeminized. I, I don't know if you could get a fight out of a male in America of any physical kind. It's that awful. So I've watched everything go from one extreme to the other extreme in my lifetime, it seems like. And, yeah, I digress. So here again we see Paul before the magistrates in contact with the magistrates. When the Lord spoke to Paul, he said there would be no harm to him. Remember that? Verses 9 and 10? No harm to you. But that did not mean there wouldn't be difficulties or persecution of some sort. But notice here, no harm did come to him. Here we see the inner position of the magistrates on behalf of Paul. The magistrate keeps Paul from harm. Praise God, right? This magistrate acts right in his office in the sight of Christ. And this is huge. Had Gallio sided with the Jews, scholars point out that this would have slowed the preaching of the gospel for the next 10 to 12 years. Then there was a change in Roman rule under Nero decidedly against the Christians. 
But those 10 to 12 years running up till then would have been decidedly different had Gallio sided with Sosthenes and the Jews against the Christians. Gallio was held in esteem. Had his judgment gone against Paul, all other proconsuls would hear of his verdict on this, and they too would have made things hard on the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Because of the interposition of this proconsul, the Christian faith was given liberty to be proclaimed. And I have spoken of this many times. This demonstrates once again the impact of the magistrates concerning the gospel, whether for good or for evil. And I've seen this in our days, from a judge to a policeman. They can either help proliferate the spread of the gospel, or they can hinder the spread of the gospel. This is why churchmen have always believed it important to instruct the magistrates to speak to the civil realm regarding their office, instructing them in their duty in the sight of Christ. Christ's kingdom impacts both individuals and nations. And here we see it yet again in Acts 18, our text. Over and over again, we see them in contact with the magistrates, instructing the magistrates. Here Paul gave no instruction in front of the magistrate or to the magistrate because the magistrate threw the case out before he could even speak. Verse 18 goes on and says, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So Silas and Timothy and the others seemed to stay in Corinth, but Priscilla and Aquila go with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencria. I showed you that on the map, for he had taken a vow. We know nothing of this vow, what it entailed, so why speculate? And he came to Ephesus and left them there, talking about Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, which he did in Acts 19, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. We don't know why Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem so badly. We don't know what the feast was. Numerous scholars I read said that it was Pentecost. And if that was the case... You could see why Paul might want to be there because he knows there would be God-fears coming from all over the place to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Huge crowd to be able to talk to about about Christ. But what we do know, one of the reasons he wanted to get there wasn't just because of the feast, but he wanted to speak to the church leaders. Look what it says in verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he lands at Caesarea. He's gone up and greeted the church, which is where that's being referred to, Jerusalem. And how many of you remember why it says that he went up to Jerusalem, even though if you look on a map, From Caesarea to Jerusalem, he went down. How many of you remember that? 
It's because you always go up to Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem was held in esteem. So it didn't matter if you were south and going up or you were north, you're still going up to Jerusalem. That's how the Jewish mind worked regarding that. And that's why it says, from there he went down to Antioch, which we know was what? North of Jerusalem. Right? But the scripture says he went down to Antioch. That's how the Jews always said it. You never go down to Jerusalem. You're always going up to Jerusalem because it was a wholly important city of the Jewish world. Now none of you will forget that next time. That was one of those little things I probably mentioned before. Where you're like, why does he have to talk about that? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I could sit up here and talk about like a million crazy things because I do a lot of studying and I have to like parse out like 80% of it. So I'm just bringing you like the best things. <laughs> you do understand that, right? So, yeah. Are you awake? A lot of you look awake. A few of you I don't look at. Because you'll put me to sleep. So anyway, verse 23 is actually the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 22 is the conclusion of his second missionary journey. Verse 23 says, after he had spent some time there in Antioch, remember that's where the Gentile brethren were, this whole mission to the Gentiles started. And he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, Strengthening all the disciples. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. Now, do you want me to do this little vignette, verses 24 through 28, regarding Apollos? Or have you had enough and you want me to wait till next time? So you want to hear the vignette or not? Okay. Those of you who want to say no, you're so polite you didn't say it, so the yes people win. And I'll go through this. In the midst of all this, you know how Luke's famous for his vignettes. He throws in this little vignette about this guy named Apollos, which, of course, he was big in the early church, and Paul wrote about him in the book of 1 Corinthians. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. When you look at the Greek word there for eloquent man, he was educated. He was well thought out. He was a thinker. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So when it says he spoke accurately of the things of the Lord, not all the things, because he didn't know all the things, but everything he did know up to the baptism of John, he did speak accurately. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, there in Ephesus, When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, now, did you notice Aquila and Priscilla didn't make a Facebook post and say, can you believe this stupid, dopey heretic? This ignoramus came and said these things here. Let's demonize him, marginalize him, poop all over his forehead, and toss him into the corner, right? Notice... They didn't act like the Christians on Facebook, right? No, they actually privately took him aside and had a conversation with him and instructed him in the more sure way of the Lord. Amen? 
And for all you young people, that's like a massive lesson to learn. There's things that get done privately. I know you've been raised, everything's public. And there's, those of us who are older are horrified by what you young people put up. Like, have you no desire for any privacy? Have you no shame? Have, are you nuts? And it's just like, some things are done in private, said in private, kept in private. And this is one of them. When there's a conflict, you're not going to get it resolved on Facebook. More readily, you'll get it resolved if you can sit down and talk to someone privately or get on the phone and talk with them. It's just, if there's a true conflict or if there's some wrong belief or teaching, you're not going to recover it. And there is times where there's false teaching where you've got to say something because you see so many people watching and you have to stand for what's true. But you can say it in a way without being disparaging of someone else or overly disparaging of someone else. So there's a great art called private conversations, young people, that you know nothing about. And I would love to teach you about them if you want to learn how to do a private conversation. So a lot of young people, and even old people, I'm just stunned how many old people do this too. It's like, they turn, it's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, right? It's like if you meet them in person, they're nice. You see them on Facebook, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like ripping people to shreds. There's something about having to look someone in the eye or at least be on the phone and use your voice and hear their voice to have a private conversation with them to instruct them in something good. I've done this many, many times. I don't respond publicly. If I know them well enough and I have their phone number, call them up and talk to them. So what are you thinking here? I saw you said this. And then able to work. I've seen people pull stuff down because they realized it was dumb what they said. Um, and I've seen it go the other way. <laughs> but you have a private conversation. You don't sit there and get in a big brouhaha. And if it involves something personal, you know what I'm saying? I always try to teach my family this. You always only tell whoever needs to know who's ever part of the situation. Once you include people outside that situation, it's, it's infinitely harder to ever restore relationships because it isn't even about that anymore, whatever the original thing was. It's all about pride and everybody's got their camp and all that kind of stuff, you know? So if you love Christ and you love his body, the matter of private communication is extremely important. Extremely important. So when I read this in verse 26, they took him aside (laughs) and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I thought to myself immediately about the difference there versus how much is done in social networking these days. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So instead of building up with Paulos something where he has to defend himself publicly in a bad way, for a bad belief, for an imperfect belief, because they privately took him aside and won him to their beliefs, now he's able to be used of the Lord powerfully. Whereas if they would have did that, like the Facebook thing, He might have been one of their most eloquent enemies 
for years and years to come. Do you see what I'm saying? It's massive. Private conversation is important. Realizing when you can say something to someone that'll bring a goodness that nobody will know about. <laughs> you know, I know, I know nobody will know about it, right? Because you didn't do it on Facebook. But still, you did a good thing. And who cares if anybody does or doesn't know about it? What matters is you did right by him and by the body of Christ. Amen? Extremely important to understand. So we're done with our little vignette. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you that you have preserved your scriptures. And Lord, I pray that you would take what I proclaim today, lengthy as it was, tedious at times as it was, and Lord, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would use it for good in the heart and mind of each hearer. And Lord, that you would use it as a goodness for each one to understand your ways and your thoughts better, and therefore to be more useful in your hands. Lord, I just ask that you would keep our hearts hungry for you, desirous to seek you, to live for you, to make our days in the earth count. We rejoice in you, O God, and thank you for all that you've done in our lives and in our families. We just ask and pray that you would be glorified with the days you've allotted us through the lives which we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You could be seated. And we are having communion this week. We do have communion every week at Mercy Seat. So you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake at the Lord's table here. But you do have to be a believer. If you're not a believer, uh, we ask that you not take communion because only believers are to partake at the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul wrote of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul sums it up and says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The sole means whereby we're accepted of God is through the propitiatory work of Christ at Calvary on the cross. And this time at his table reminds us of that fact. Because we have the fruit of the vine representing his blood, and we have the bread representing his body. And notice there's nothing else here. Showing us it's through Christ alone God accepts us. There isn't these two elements plus a list of my good works. There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my holy living. It's these two elements, period. Amen? The good works that we do, the holy living that we demonstrate, those things are the result of our saving faith. They're the evidence or the fruit of our saving faith. We don't do good works to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do good works because we have 
obtained his acceptance. Amen. And we need to be reminded of that because man in all his religiosity always wants to add to the finished work of Christ and think, no, it's Jesus plus me. And it's not. Whether you're a Christian for five seconds or 55 years, you can always only approach the Father through Jesus plus nothing. And this time at his table reminds us of that important theological fact. So I encourage you, if you've sinned, confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive you. Amen. If any has sinned against you, you need to forgive them, just as he's forgiven you. Amen.